Lord, as we go deeper into the dysfunctional house of David, as we see the the failure of David as a father to his own children, as, as we see the problems and we see bitterness and anger and we see outbursts of murder and even warring and undermining and all these difficult things that the next several chapters hold for us, Lord. May we not just see this as a study in history, but a contrast to the Father heart of God. And Lord, I don't even have that written into my notes, but I just I ask that you will reveal that to us and show us and help us to see that and know and know you as our Father. Father, there's so many of us in our own families who recognize dysfunction. And among us, those who don't believe there's any dysfunction in their family are dysfunctional for not believing it. Lord, it's just the reality of, of sin in the world and the sin nature we all bear and the, the, the stuff that we all bring to our families that, that cause us to stumble and struggle. It causes parents to look at their kids and think, oh, I just wish they didn't have to go through some of what I've had to go through, knowing while we're praying that that they're going to go through it. And I am just so thankful that in the midst of this messy world full of children, Lord, that there is a Father who loves us. Thank you so much for being our covering and our security. Thank you, Father, just for your nature and characteristics for who you are. I thank you, Lord, that you're healthy, (laughs) that you're perfect and holy and completely just and merciful and righteous. And I thank you most of all that you choose to love us anyway. Help us see you tonight, Lord, and walk a little closer to you. Lord, I I pray that you will gather your children around at your feet as you teach, and that we may all just sit in awe before you and be, be just blown away by who you are. For some here tonight, Lord, they need to rest their heads on your chest and just hear your heart beating. Others need to to feel a sense of of playfulness with you as a dad and others need Lord to to sit at your feet and apologize and just repent for running away but all together we're a group of children coming before our father our Abba our dad and asking you Lord to speak to our hearts in Jesus name Amen Well, Sunday morning we studied 2 Samuel 13, the first 21 verses. The follow-up story to David and Bathsheba, in which David's firstborn son Amnon cannot handle his lust, burns with lust for his half-sister Tamar, and he rapes her, proving this sordid truth, like father lust son. We talked about that and went into that in in, uh, depth Sunday morning. The clear contrast of lust and love What lust is versus what love is. The worldly lust is passing away. That's not going to last. And the love of the Father, the love of Jesus that is so absolutely different than the way we tend to view love in our world. 1 Corinthians 13.4 Let me remind you that love is patient. And love is kind. 
and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and that's love. That's love. If any one of us can pop ourselves into 1 Corinthians 13 and put our name in the place of love, then we'll get a sense of how we're doing. Rick is patient. Rick is kind. Rick is not jealous. Rick does not brag. Rick is not arrogant. Rick does not act unbecomingly. Rick does not seek his own. Do it with your own name. I'm not going to do any more with my name because it's just going to get worse and worse. If you're in a relationship, then place yourself there in the place of love and, and ask the Lord, Am I? Am I these things? First fruit of the Spirit is love. The number one command is love. For, for the Lord, that is what it all boils down to. I had a, a fascinating and, and wonderful conversation this afternoon that really blessed me and really encouraged me. And it was with someone who's, who believes in God, but pretty much beyond that, not much. Um, at least as far as church and religion and all this stuff. And, and we talked about that. And, and, and this person had questions that were great questions. Questions that we don't like to answer. Questions that typically we'll answer with, well, that's why you need faith. <laughs> And as we went through questions and answers and talking back and forth, it just kept coming back down to this one issue, to the issue of love. That the Lord loves us. That Jesus has a passion for us. That He really does care about us. That it really does matter to Him that we be in relationship with Him. Unlike any other God of any other religion, unlike any other holy book or set of writings, we have at the center of this book, of this word, we have... Jesus, who is the epitome of love. Greater love is no one than this. And he laid down his life for his friends. And Jesus says, you're my friends. If you do what I command. Of course, I think, well, wait a minute. If I do what I command, it sounds like that love is conditional. No, the reality, Jesus says, is if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, if your heart is about being in a love relationship with me, guess what? The commandments will take care of themselves. You're going to do what I ask, follow me, behave in the way that I want, because you love me, it'll be a natural outgrowth, a natural outflowing of your love. God makes it so simple. Love God, love people. If we do that, then everything else in here that we study is going to fall into place. It's when we stop loving God, or stop loving people, that we have such trouble with the rest of the stuff. Father, thank you for making it simple. Well, that's love, and there's so much more on that. If you want to go back, if you didn't get to hear Sunday's teaching, it's great to be able to tell you that it's on the website, and you can go there anytime and, and listen to it. I love the, the accessibility of that. But tonight we're going to pick up right where we left off. We're going to pick up in verse 22 of chapter 13, following the story of Amnon and Tamar. And there are four characters still in play. Tamar is out of the picture now. She has left a desolate daughter living in the house of her brother Absalom. Her life is ruined because of the lustful sin of Amnon. But Amnon's still in the story. David's firstborn son, Amnon, by the wife called Ahinoam. And Amnon's the rapist of Tamar, who must by now assume that he's gotten away with it. As you'll see when our story picks up, two years go by and nothing's happened. David doesn't bust him. 
On Sunday we talked about why. The fact that David's own sin hamstrung him from being able to discipline his own son. And parents, if I can encourage you with any one thing, it's this. Don't let the sin of your past keep you from disciplining your children now. Even if you did the same thing that you have to discipline them for, for their protection, for their good, for their future, don't say, oh, well, I did that, so I just got to let him slide. I just got to let her get away with it. Don't do that. Give them a chance to see what it's like to live with the discipline of the Lord. So there's Amnon, there's Jonadab, who is David's nephew. He's Amnon's cousin. There are a lot of names in here. In fact, even as we go through, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised. It took me a bit to figure out who was who and what was what because there are so many names all of a sudden happening all at once. I'm going to try and keep this straight for you tonight. But Amnon, David's firstborn. Jonadab, David's nephew. Amnon's cousin. And he's the one who is playing one side against the other. He's the tempter in the story. He's the one who sidles up to Amnon and says, here's how you get Tamar. Here's what you do. And then when Amnon rapes Tamar, Jonadab's nowhere to be seen. He's back out of the picture. He's in safety zone, you know. But he's the one who led Amnon into it. He is the one who you're going to see later on in this story sidling up now to David, trying to, to play into David's hand. Whatever's best for Jonadab, he's kind of a, well, theologically we call him a sleazebag. We'll come back to him. Absalom is number three. Amnon, Jonadab, Absalom. Absalom is David's third-born son by a woman named Maacah, who also happens to be the mother of Tamar. Absalom and Tamar are the two children born to Maacah, David's third wife. Tamar's full brother, and Absalom has not forgotten Amnon's sin. And Absalom's going to do something about it as we read on. And Absalom is going to become a major player now for the next several chapters in the life and the tragedy of David's household. And then finally, number four, we have David himself, whose household is unraveling. As I prayed before, we could call this study the dysfunctional house of David, because that's what it becomes. It is an absolute mess. Now, if you want just kind of an outline to follow as we walk through, we're going to do three chapters tonight. Chapter 13 is revenge. The revenge of Absalom. Chapter 14, restoration. The restoration of Absalom. And chapter 15, the rebellion of Absalom. But wait, Rick, didn't you get that backwards? Shouldn't it be shouldn't it be revenge and rebellion and then restoration? No, not in this story. Restoration comes, but it's not enough. It's too little too late. And rebellion is where we'll end up tonight. Chapter 13, verse 22. Immediately following the rape of Tamar, we're picking up there. But Absalom did not speak to Amnon, either good or bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Now it came about after two full years that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. And we've seen this before in the scriptures, the time of the sheep shearing was a big celebration time. It was kind of a time to party, to gather together. It was like harvest time, but with sheep. And so they would gather everybody and get together, shear the sheep, and have a big party. And so at this point, Absalom decides he's going to invite all the king's sons to come up to Baal Hazor for the sheep shearing. Verse 24, Absalom came to the king and said, Behold now, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, we should not all go, for we will be burdensome to you. And although he urged him, he would not go, but blessed him. Now this is just my thinking, my guess, but I think Absalom knew David wasn't going to go. I think Absalom knew that this was not going to happen. He had something else in mind. I think Absalom is playing his dad a little bit here. 
Verse 26, then Absalom said, Well, if not, um, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, I think suspiciously, Well, why, why should he go with you? But when Absalom urged him, he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Absalom commanded his servants, saying, See now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then put him to death. Do not fear, have I not myself commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. Well, the servants of Absalom did to Amnon just as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. Absalom's vengeance now for his sister's rape has simmered and seethed these two years. He did nothing but grow in hatred and bitterness for Amnon. And through these two years, he's plotting, he's thinking, what's the best way to go about the murder of this guy who violated my sister? And this bitterness intensifies to the point of death, and the Bible talks an awful lot about bitterness. A lot of verses dealing with bitterness. The Lord has a concern with bitterness in our lives because it festers and it intensifies, and if left unchecked, if left undealt with, it ultimately will do nobody any good. Romans 12:17 says, "Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, I like that part. I like the part about heaping the burning coals. I can get into that. Okay, so I get a little bit of vengeance. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying you'll help your enemy to realize what's going on if you're treating him with love and respect and dignity and honor as opposed to with vengeance. And Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, I read that verse, and i, I got to be honest with you. The first thing that pops into my mind, where it says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, is why does God get all the fun? Why does he get to do that? Can't I just have a little vengeance? You know, there are people who read Revelation 19, and they say this picture of Jesus riding on a white horse, followed by this host behind him. And, and I think, I'm pretty convinced biblically, that, that host is the church. But when you look at that and think about that, I've had people ask me, do I get to carry a spear? You know, do I get a sword? And the reality is, as Revelation 19 tells us, it's all over before we even touch down. I mean, Jesus just takes care of it, you know. So, you know, you might get a spear and you'll come and go, oh. you know. But we want to be able to take vengeance ourselves. Why can't I get a little satisfaction? And here's why revenge can never fulfill your heart. It can only fill your heart with more bitterness. Which is why you may have seen every now and then there's a, a newscast where, where a mother will be uh, interviewed whose son was killed or whose daughter was killed and she goes and sits in the capital punishment, the death of the killer. Nobody who comes out of seeing the killer killed in, in, in uh, the electric chair, no one who walks out of there goes, yeah, it was great, it was satisfying, I feel so much better. Because revenge just engenders more vengeance, more bitterness. The Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Because, see, the Lord can handle it. Being perfect, being love incarnate himself, when he exacts vengeance, when he pours out his wrath, and he will, when he does it, it doesn't impact or affect his heart because he's perfect. 
It's from that place of perfection and holiness that He can exact the right kind of judgment and justice. And you and I can't do that. It messes up our hearts if we try. Now I want you to see something here. There are some interesting similarities in this story. When we read chapters 11, 12, and 13, the first part, we understood there are some obvious similarities between Amnon's lust for Tamar and his moving on Tamar with David's lust for Bathsheba. As we call that lesson, like father, lust son. Like father, like son. Amnon does to Tamar what David did to Bathsheba. It's a very similar story. And you can draw parallels there. But did you realize you can also draw parallels between David's murder of Uriah and Absalom's murder of his brother Amnon? If you look at it, both murders were premeditated. David and Amnon both had time to calculate their next move, to think through, how am I going to get rid of this guy? They planned it out, executed it willfully. These were not crimes of passion. It wasn't like Uriah walked in on David and Bathsheba and David jumped up and stabbed him and, oh no, I killed him. No, David planned it out. Sending a message by Uriah himself back to the field, back to Joab saying, put him in the front so he gets killed. David had it worked out. It was not a crime of passion. It was a crime of intention. Same thing with Absalom. He thought it through. I need to get Amnon away from the palace. I need to get him out of Jerusalem. Some place where he's vulnerable. And then we can take him down. Both murders were premeditated. Both murders were purposeful in that they were a means to an end. David had to have Uriah killed to cover up his sin. Absalom killed Amnon in part. In part to avenge his sister. But there's another underhanded reason behind Absalom's murder of Amnon. You see, remember, Amnon was the firstborn son of David. And Absalom has his eye on something, and that's the throne. So to kill Amnon is to get the firstborn out of the way completely. We'll see this purpose emerge, this dark purpose as we go forward. So both murders were premeditated, they were both purposeful, and both murders were performed by others. David did not lay a hand on Uriah. Though he was completely responsible. Absalom didn't lay a hand on Amnon. He had his servants do it. They both were a step away from the actual killing. But they both were 100% responsible. I tell you this to say that whether it's Amnon's lust or Absalom's murder, both can be tied to their father David and his sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah. Like father, like sons. And I'm so thankful that there's another father-son scenario that is perfect. And when we think of our Heavenly Father and we look at Jesus, we can say like father, like son, and the picture is perfect. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. One of the questions I was asked today is how do you really know who Jesus is? How do you really accept that Jesus is what the Bible says? You know, Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate. How can you know that? And we talk through all kinds of prophecies and fulfillments of Jesus. But here's the truth, gang. In these last days, the Lord has spoken to us through His Son. How do we know what God is like? How do we understand the nature of God as a loving God? We look at Jesus. And we see in Jesus the perfect picture of God. God sent His Son that we might know Him better. The Hebrew writer says, In these last days He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the world. And listen to this. He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. 
What's God like? Look at Jesus. How does God react in this situation? Look at Jesus. What is God excited about? What thrills Him? What saddens Him? Look at Jesus. And you will see every time the exact representation of God, like Father, like Son. John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him, like Father, like Son. Look at Jesus, you see God. Jesus Himself said in John 5.19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself, unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner, like Father, like Son. It's perfect. And in John 14, verse 8, Philip is talking to Jesus and he says, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, and I love this answer, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? Jesus says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Like Father, like Son. By the way, in striking similarity to the victims of David and Absalom, the murder of Jesus was also premeditated. It was planned out ahead of time. Sometimes you can watch the old movies, Jesus of Nazareth, or the Jesus movie, or the, or the Passion of the Christ, and, and you can say, oh wow, it was, it was a crime of passion. You see the Jews just stirred up, and you see the Romans, and they just, ah, they go out and take them out, and they crucify them. No, it was a premeditated murder. Because Revelation chapter 13 calls Jesus the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. This plan was laid in before creation. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18 says, You are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. You were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ. And listen to this. It says, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That word foreknown is literally foreordained. Jesus was foreordained before the foundations of the world to do what he did. The murder of Jesus was premeditated. Our salvation was not God's plan B, following plan A being the Ten Commandments. God's plan A, God's only plan has always been Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. The murder of Jesus was premeditated. The murder of Jesus was purposeful. 1 Corinthians 15.19 Paul says, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. There was a purpose for this death. A purpose for this murder. And it wasn't so we could feel comfortable now. Oh, it was so we could feel comforted now. And peace now. So that we could have strength to get through this life. But it was so much more purposeful than being able to, I don't know, figure out five steps to a happy marriage or three steps to a successful business like we hear in so many churches today the murder of Jesus was purposeful it was for our salvation for eternity and the murder of Jesus was performed at the hands of others similar to the murder of Uriah and the murder of Amnon the murder of Jesus was performed by others but it was under his design John 19 verse 30 said when Jesus had received the sour wine he's up on the cross and he said it is finished and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit he died when he was ready he died when he completed the role the task that the Lord had sent him for he died at his call by his design but he designed he, he did die at the hands of others I love the gospel of John because as you read through it you realize that Jesus was in control John, by the way, of the four Gospels was the latest one written. 
written several years, some 30, 40, maybe 50 years after the other Gospels. And John, Jesus' best friend, thought about it. And he pondered these things and brooded over the life of Jesus and what it all meant. So that when he sat down to write, inspired by the Holy Spirit, what he wrote was, wow, Jesus. Jesus was God in the flesh. Jesus was in control from day one. He knew exactly what he was doing. Well, back to our story, Absalom Absalom has now murdered Amnon, and the sons of David hightail it out of there on their mules, which I think is kind of funny. I'm not sure how fast they could go. They hop on the mules, go, go, go! Come on! It's like those little ride-on machines that you see people riding in the grocery stores and stuff now. Go, go! Anyway, so they hightail it out of there. Verse 30, now it was while they were on the way... That the report came to David saying, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. And the king arose, tore his clothes, lay on the ground and all his servants were standing by with clothes torn as well. And isn't that just the way of things? Had all of David's sons been killed? No, just one. But word goes from one person to another, to another, to another. And when it finally gets to David, they're all dead. Every one of them. Now, it's tragic that one son killed another. But this is the way gossip works. As we pass things along, it's rarely ever as bad as it seems when it gets to us. And that's what we see here with David. And he is weeping and his clothes are torn. He's just, he's he's falling apart. Verse 32, Jonadab, here he comes, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, responded, Do not let my lord suppose they have put to death all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. How do you know that? Jonadab were you there how do you know that it's just Amnon who was killed he tips his hat a little more or his hand and he says because by the intent of Absalom this has been determined since the day that he violated his sister Tamar how do you know that Jonadab he said Jonadab's the one who counseled Amnon to rape Tamar and I really wonder and I can't prove this but I wonder if Jonadab is not the one who counseled, counseled Absalom to kill Amnon He certainly knew about the plan. He was certainly all aware of it. Well, verse 33 says, Now therefore do not let the Lord my king take the report to heart, namely all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Verse 34, Now Absalom had fled, and the young man who was with the watchman raised his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain and Jonadab said to the king behold the king's sons have come according to your servant's word so it has happened see what he's doing he's he's ingratiating himself to David he's trying to be the one who's bringing the good news he's trying to be the consoler he's trying to get in there and get something I believe for himself and as soon as he finished speaking behold the king's sons came and lifted their voices and wept and also the king and all his servants wept very bitterly (laughs) this guy Jonadab is unbelievable After playing the tempter of the rape of Tamar, he's now trying to play the trustworthy servant of David. I'm here for you, King David, Uncle Dave. And Jonadab is, as I said before, a sleazebucket. He's just ingratiating himself to David. And do you know where it finally ultimately gets him? Nowhere. This is the last we're going to hear of Jonadab. For all his attempts to work his way into the family of David and be a known player in this kingdom... He goes nowhere. We hear nothing more about him. I mention that because as we saw him in this role of the temperature on Sunday, the vicarious sinner who lives out his sin through someone else, 
but disappears from view when the consequences hit, we look at this guy and we have to realize, even with Jonadab, you can run but you can't hide. Be sure, Numbers 32, 23, your sin will find you out. Now I know that Numbers 32, 23 has been up on the board a lot. It's because we need to know it. Memorize it. Be sure, your sin will find you out. It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter how you try to hide it. Sin itself has a homing device on it. And you can't hide it. And it will come back and get you. And I believe that's the case with Jonadab. Hebrews 4.13 says, There's no creature hidden from the Lord's sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You hear nothing about Jonadab getting busted, however. And I kind of wish you did. I wish David would turn and go, Wait a minute. You're the guy who was there with that and doing the thing. Get him out of here. I mean, something. Some kind of punishment for this guy. There's no justice. And doesn't justice dictate that Jonadab should get caught and punished too? Well, let's extend that thought to ourselves. Is there someone in your life who needs a little judgment? Someone you can think of who you go, well, they could use a little discipline. They could use just a taste of wrath. Lord, I could call down a few curses on their head. Are there people that you can think of that are in that place and you think, man, they just need to get busted. And you're wondering why they keep getting away with their little secret games. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 says, Do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will bring both to light the things that are hidden in the darkness and He will disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Paul says, wait for it. If you're concerned that someone's not getting their comeuppance as they have deserved it, wait for it. Wait for it. God's going to take care of it. Again, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Your role, and listen to me, there's so much of this conversation from this afternoon that is spinning around in my head, so you're going to hear some of it, I guess, tonight. One of the problems that people have is they look at Christians and they say they are so judgmental. It's partially a cop-out in the non-Christian world. It's partially just a dodge, a smokescreen to get us off track. But the reality is we judge too much. We are not called to judge the world. We are called to love the world. The Lord will judge. And you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about whether or not it's going to be taken care of. Our call, for our part, is to love people. To be compassionate and graceful. And show mercy. Like Jesus in his first coming when he said, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now the second time he comes, he will come to judge. And we'll ride behind him with our little you know, plastic spears and whatever. But Jesus is the only one who has that right to judge. It's not our business. It's not our right. The motives of Amnon and Absalom were clear. Jonadab, well, he's got to think he's kind of a smooth operator. No one knows that he's behind the scenes and all these things going on. The reality is... His part has been front page news for 3,000 years. When you read Jonadab's name, you just look at him and go, what a jerk. (laughs) That's his legacy. So I guess he kind of did get his. Verse 37. Now Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, the king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son every day. By the way, you'll see through this, David absolutely loved Absalom. I think Absalom was probably David's favorite son. 
Absalom was probably more like David in many ways than any of the other sons. David loved him passionately and his heart is absolutely broken. The heart of David longed to go out to Absalom. I'm sorry, verse 38 says Absalom fled and gone to Geshurim was there three years and the heart of King David longed to go out to Absalom for he was comforted concerning Amnon since he was dead. If that reads a little weird for you, comforted there is consoled. Okay, he realizes that he can't bring Amnon back. He realizes that that's a done deal. So there's at least a sense of closure there. Not so with Absalom. This may be kind of a sick thought for some of you. I don't know if you've ever been in the place where you've had a family member who was so messed up that the thought runs through your mind it'd be easier if they were dead. Not that you would kill them. Don't get me wrong. And I'm seeing some looks like, okay, what's Rick's deal here? He's going to go now. He's going to leave. You continue your study. Maybe you haven't been in that place. And I'm not talking about that you want to see someone dead. But you feel like, man, it's just there's so much carnage that follows this person. If they were just dead, at least I could have closure. At least I could deal with that. But as long as they're out there, and I don't know what's going on and what's happening. And see, that's David with his two sons, Amnon and Absalom. With Amnon, he's gone. There's nothing I can do. He can get through that. Absalom's out there. Absalom is banished from the kingdom. It's an embarrassment. It's upsetting. It's heartbreaking. He is sleepless night after night. What am I going to do? I can't, he cannot get his mind off. He is despondent about his son, Absalom. And it's a tragic situation. Why did Absalom flee to Geshur? Why does he go there? Well, Geshur is actually north of Jerusalem. It's in the Galilee region. It's between the Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. It was at this time. And 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 3, tells us that Talmai, the king of Geshur, was also Absalom's grandfather. So when Absalom flees, he's running to grandpa's house... That's where he's going. His mother, remember, was Mayaka, and Mayaka was daughter to Talmai. So that's why he runs there. Something that's interesting about Geshur, it was a small Aramean kingdom in the middle of Israel. And we read last week that David secured all the borders. Maybe it was the week before last. But he cleared out everything, and Israel was a solid kingdom. It was, but it had pockets of paganism, and this is one of them. And Talmai and his little mini kingdom was right there. They were an Aramean people in the city of Geshur. And it's a pocket of paganism that was undisturbed by Israel despite the fact that God had told Joshua and the Israelites when they came into the land, clear out the pagans. Clear the land completely of all the Canaanites. There shouldn't be a single one left here. I want them cleared out so that you can then grow up as my people in security and safety. But here we find in the middle of Israel, which is a tiny country anyway, this this tiny little pinprick of a people, the Arameans sitting in this city, a pocket of paganism. And when Absalom is in trouble, that's where he goes. He runs to the pocket of paganism. How about you? When you're in trouble... When things are out of control, maybe when you've fallen or sinned and something wrong, do you find yourself running back to those old pockets of paganism? Those places of sin that you haven't quite cleared out of your life. See, the Lord would say, clear them out completely so that you cannot go back there. And Absalom runs right back to it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.15, What harmony has Christ 
with Belial or Satan? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God, just as God said. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, the Lord says, come out from their midst and be separate, and touch not what is unclean, and I'll welcome you. And listen, 2 Corinthians 6.18, he says, I will be a father to you. I'll be your father. Some of you have not had a real good relationship with an earthly father. And you're wondering, I'm not even sure exactly what that looks like. God says, I will be the father you didn't have. I will be the father you long for. I will be father to you, the perfect father. And you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. He wants us to clear out the pockets of paganism. So when things go wrong, even when we sin, the place that we turn and run to is our father. Our Father, who receives us like the prodigal son with open arms and grace and forgiveness. So part one is Absalom's revenge. Part two, Absalom's restoration. We begin chapter 14 with David despondent. It says, Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was inclined toward Absalom. Literally, it just says the king's heart toward Absalom. In other words, David is thinking Absalom, Absalom, Absalom 24-7. He cannot get his mind on the ruling of Israel because he can only think about his lost son. And so Joab sent to Tekoa and brought a wise woman from there and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments now and do not anoint yourself with oil, but be like a woman who has been mourning for the dead many days. And then go to the king and speak to him in this manner. And so then Joab put words in her mouth. We'll see what those words are in a moment. But you need to understand Joab is worried about Israel. He's worried about the army. He's worried about the people because the king is not acting like a king. Joab's concerned. Absalom's banished. Morale has got to be down among the people. By the way, Absalom was well loved in Israel. People thought very highly of him, so this is not looking good. The household of David's messed up. Joab sends to Tekoa. This is, by the way, the place that Joab grew up. And he sends for a wise woman from Tekoa. And it's likely Joab already knew who she was because that's where he grew up. Or at least he knew about her. So verse 4 says, When the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground. And she prostrated herself and said, Help, O king! And the king said to her, What is your trouble? Well, she answered, Truly I am a widow, for my husband is dead. Your maidservant had two sons, but the two of them struggled together in the field, and there was no one to separate them, so one struck the other and killed him. Now behold, the whole family has risen against your maidservant. And they say, Hand over the one who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed, and destroy the heir also. And she says, Thus, if they do this, they will extinguish my coal which is left. Seems a little weird. She's saying they'll, they'll put out my source of support. She's saying, I'm a widow. Two sons. One is killed at the hands of the other. Now if they kill him as punishment for killing my other son, I won't have anyone to take care of me. And so she says, they will extinguish my coal, which is left, so as to leave my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. So David said to the woman, go to your house. I will give orders concerning you. Well, the woman of Tekoa said to the king, Oh, my lord, the king, the iniquity is on me and my father's house. But the king and his throne are guiltless. She's telling a parable here. This whole thing's made up. This didn't really happen. 
But she's trying to draw David into the place of realizing what's happening in his own house by comparing her house. And so the king said in verse 10, Whoever speaks to you, bring him to me, and he will not touch you anymore. And then she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God, so that the avenger of blood will not continue to destroy. Otherwise they will destroy my son. And he said, and I think he's getting a little exasperated with this woman, he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Okay, I'll take care of it, woman. (laughs) Relax, go home, I got it covered. And David pours out this formal oath, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And the woman said, Please let your maidservant speak a word to my lord the king. And he said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in speaking this word, the king is as one who is guilty, and that the king does not bring back his banished one. Starts to hit David. Oh, okay, I know what you're driving at. And the woman said, and mark this, she says, We will surely die and are all like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. Father heart right there. Father heart of God. When God looks at his children, when he looks at you, when he looks at me, and we do things that deserve banishment, This wise woman from Tekoa says, God doesn't do this. He doesn't take away life. He plans ways so the banished one will not be cast out from him. Great line. Great verse. Now the reason I have come to speak this word to my lord the king is that the people have made me afraid. So your maidservant said, let me now speak to the king. Perhaps the king will perform the request of his maidservant. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy both me and my son from the inheritance of God. So she's still trying to spin this yarn a little further. And then your maidservant said, Please let the word of my lord the king be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is the lord the king to discern good and evil. And may the lord your God be with you. Well, then the king answered and he said to the woman, Please do not hide anything from me I am about to ask you. And the woman said... Let my lord the king please speak. So the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? (laughs) You've been talking to Joab. She put you up to this. And the woman replied, As your soul lives, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. Indeed, it was your servant Joab who commanded me, and it was he who put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant, in order to change the appearance of things, your servant Joab has done this thing. But, but she says, my Lord is wise, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all that is in the earth. She's still trying to butter him up. And the king then said to Joab, who must be standing there, Behold now, I will surely do this thing. Go therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. So Joab's ploy worked. He got into David's heart, kind of a roundabout way. This is now the second time a parable has been sent to David. Remember, remember Nathan went, brought a parable to David about the sin in his life. And I guess people are just a little bit afraid to speak directly to David. So they're bringing stories. So this is the second time it's happened, and the ploy worked. David is now willing to absolve Absalom and restore him, bring him home, but not completely. Verse 22. Joab fell on his face to the ground, prostrated himself, and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, O my lord the king. 
in that the king has performed the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. However, the king said, Let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom turned to his own house and did not see the king's face. David was willing to bring him back. He just wasn't willing to see him. He was willing to forgive him. He just was not willing to forget about what Absalom had done. He is not done making Absalom pay for his sin. Apparently he didn't pick up on the most important thing the woman of Tekoa said, and that's that God does not take away life but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. In other words, David... David, when you sinned and killed Uriah, what did God do? What did he do to you? He said, forgive you. You will not die for this sin. Your house is going to be messed up. That's going to be the natural fallout. But I forgive you. That's God's response. Now David's response to his own son Absalom doing precisely the same thing, murdering someone, David's response is much more human and not so godly. Do you ever do that with someone? I forgive you, and I'm not forgetting what you did. And I will remind you of it from time to time, just so that you remember what you did. Yeah, oh, I forgive you. Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Oh, well, how's that? How has God in Christ forgiven us? Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Hebrews 10.17 says, Your sins and your lawless deeds I will remember no more. He forgives and forgets. Once the Lord forgives us of sin, it's gone. And we go back to the Lord and say, Father, I'm I'm just so sorry for that. You know that thing we talked about last week? I'm still, I'm just so sorry for that. And and the Lord's saying, Sorry for what? (laughs) I, I don't even have a clue what you're talking about. Because you were forgiven And it's history And here's a great standard Brothers and sisters For us all to live by Forgive to the degree That you've been forgiven If we were to do that We'd forgive everybody And we'd forget everything That was ever done against us Because the degree To which I have been forgiven Is eternal It is so far beyond comprehension I can never forgive To the complete amount That God has forgiven me Is there someone you're making pay for their sins against you? That you've forgiven them, but you're just kind of holding it over their head a little bit. The Lord would say, you know, let it go. Let it go. You're not only hurting them, you're hurting yourself because you're engendering bitterness in your heart. Let it go. Well, David has a little trouble letting it go. And unfortunately, his lack of forgiveness for his son provokes bitterness in his son as well. Verse 25, now in all Israel... In all Israel was no one as handsome as Absalom. Okay? This guy's on the cover of GQ, or IQ, Israel, anyway. It says from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no defect in him. This guy was perfect. And when he cut the hair of his head, and it was at the end of every year that he cut it, for it was heavy on him, so he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels by the king's weight, four pounds. Once a year, Absalom goes to the hair cutters and gets four pounds of hair cut off his head. That's huge. Massive hair. I mean, this guy was amazing. And by the way, that's there. It's interesting, you know, these things get tucked in and we read them and go, 
Okay, great, he had a lot of hair. I don't get the point. What's the, it's because we're getting a little foreshadowing, actually a little piece of information that will help us understand Absalom's death later. Remember this, because when Absalom dies, you'll get why what happens, happens. Well, verse 27 says, To Absalom there were born three sons, and one daughter whose name was Tamar, his sister's name, his rape sister's name, he's still holding on to this thing too. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. Now Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem and did not see the king's face. So he was banished three years in Geshur. He comes back and now he's two years in the same small town. Now this is funny to me. Anacortes and Oak Harbor. Two small towns. And I don't know how people do it. Because I grew up in Southern California where pretty much you don't know anybody. You know, except you go to a place, you go to church, and there you know people. Or you go to school, and there you know, or to work, there you know people. But man, when you're out driving around, you don't run into people. At least not anybody you know, which makes it a lot easier to hate everybody. You know, <laughs> kind of Southern California lifestyle. That's what I grew up with. Like in Anacortes? Man, I'll never forget the first time I went to the grocery store. I had on shorts and a t-shirt. And I didn't want to take the time to put on shoes and socks, so I grabbed my Ugg boots and threw them on my feet. You know, <laughs> looked like a complete moron, but it didn't matter in California because everybody else looked like morons to you too. You know, I go to the grocery store Safeway, and I ran into I kid you not, like ten people from the church in in five or ten minutes, and I'm just going hi. <laughs> you know, I'm just here, just grabbing milk. You know, I'm gonna go home and brush my teeth now. This is not a good meeting. <laughs> And I don't know how people do this, be in such a small place. Jerusalem is not a big city, gang. Not at this time, anyway. You make your way around it pretty quickly, and he did not see. David did not see Absalom. Absalom did not see David. They knew they were both there. And that's so weird. It's weird to be, and I have been, in relationship settings where, where you got a problem with someone, and you just keep running into them, you know? It's one of the things I love about Anacortes and O'Carver. The Lord just kind of forces us into those situations where we have to forgive or stay home. And it's one of the two. <laughs> so, going on, I don't even know where we are now. Two full years in Jerusalem, he did not see the king's face. And then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. So Joab is now ignoring Absalom too. So he sent again a second time, but he would not come. And therefore he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go set it on fire. <laughs> I am going to make my presence known here. I'm going to light a fire under this guy and get him over here. So he does. Absalom's servant set the field on fire. And Joab arose and came to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why did your servant set my field on fire? <laughs> Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent for you, saying, Come here that I may send you to the king to say, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me still to be there. Now therefore, let me see the king's face. And if there is iniquity in me, let him put me to death. What's Absalom doing? He's calling David's bluff. Don't play games with me, man. You want me here, then you acknowledge that I'm here. And so when Joab came to the king and told him, he called for Absalom. Thus he came to the king and prostrated himself on the ground, to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom but it was too little too late when we read this and we think oh good peace good fine they're back together they're talking this is good it's too late David should have done this two years before reached out to his son 
Absalom now has another motive to being fully restored in Jerusalem. Part 3, Absalom's Rebellion. Chapter 15, verse 1, It came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and fifty men as runners before him. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And he would say, Well, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. And then Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right. Oh, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. Absalom is now undermining the king. For verse 4, moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Then every man who has any suit or cause could come to me and I would give him justice. Wouldn't it be better if I was king? And David's up there and... You know, he's, he's just he's so cut off from, from really what's happening with the people. He's not like me. I'm, I'm with you, man. Mano y mano. I'm hanging. I'm down here in the gate. I'm out here with the people, rubbing shoulders together. You know, I know what you're going through. I'm one of you. And he's up there. And, you know, if you, if you came to me, if I was king, it'd be a lot better. The people begin to buy it. Verse 5, when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Oh, no, 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 don't be a servant to me. Let's, let's be brothers. I'm with you, man. Verse 6, and in this manner Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. This plot thickens as Absalom moves to undermine his father's throne to usurp his rule over, over Israel and he's playing to the hearts of the people and by the way this example is one of a man who should never ever be followed we're told in the Bible that God is love incarnate however our father who loves eternally is capable of an intense hatred did you know that that God who is love also hates it makes sense because true love does hate anything that hampers true love. In Proverbs 6.16, this is a, a passage of scripture we should all know and be familiar with. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. Now, this is Hebrew prose. And the way it's being written is saying there are six things here, but number seven, when we get to number seven in the list, that's the big one. That's the worst one. Of all these, as bad as these other ones are, number seven is the one to pay attention to. Listen to these. He says, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. Number six, a false witness who utters lies. And number seven, the thing that's an abomination to him that he hates more than all the other things combined, one who spreads strife among brothers. One who undermines. One who says, you know, I know some things about her that you don't know. And I'm just going to tell you a few things so we can pray for her. I know a few things about him and, you know, whatever you want to do, you want to follow King David, that's great, but (laughs) i tell you what, I know some stuff. A person who spreads strife among brothers is number one the most hated thing to the Lord Paul says in Romans 16 17 I urge you brethren keep your eye on those who cause dissensions 
and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and listen turn away from them Paul wait we're a church we're supposed to accept and love everybody not those who would tear apart the love and unity of the church if you have a brother or sister in a church fellowship who is causing dissension Paul says turn away from them that's the person that you don't accept because that's the person who's going to rip the heart out of the church if there is one thing to avoid above all this is it it's dissension and it's division the Lord calls behavior that stirs the pot and causes dissension, disunity, and disarmony an abomination because it undermines the numero uno primary characteristic that we're called to and that's love love is first Going on in verse 7 of chapter 15, it came about at the end of 40 years that Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. This number 40 here has confused some people. Let me just point this out. The Hebrew word for 40 is Arbaim. The word Arba, or Arba, I'm trying to say it like Cheryl's trying to teach me to say it, Arba. Uh, that's the number four. So you're just counting up in, in Hebrew. Arba is four. Arbaim is the plural of four, and Arbaim is the word that always means forty in the Hebrew Scriptures. Why is that important? Well, if you look at this, some translations say it came about at the end of four years, and they change it because they go, well, wait a minute, it can't be that Absalom was in was in Jerusalem forty years because David would be, would be dead by now. He wouldn't live that long, so that number can't be right. Well, I believe the number is right. Arbaim. 40 because this is drawing back to David's anointing by Samuel so at the end of 40 years now David has been an anointed ruler for 40 years and now at this point the narrative continues make sense for everybody great let's read on verse 8 for your servant vowed a vow this is Absalom speaking to David I vowed a vow while I was living in Geshur at Aram saying if the Lord shall indeed bring me back to Jerusalem then I will serve the Lord well, this kind of touches on something that David would like. And so the king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. And what is he going to do there? Absalom, verse 10, sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Then 200 men went with Absalom from Jerusalem, who were invited, and went innocently. They did not know anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city at Gilo, while he was offering the sacrifices and the conspiracy was strong for the people increased continually with Absalom one question this guy Ahithophel who is counselor to David he is one of David's most trusted advisors will now jump ship and join up with Absalom against David why would he do that? I'll tell you on Sunday morning Verse 13. Then a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. David said to all his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, otherwise none of us will escape from Absalom. Go in haste or he will overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And then the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king chooses. So the king went out, verse 16, and all his household with him. But the king left ten concubines to keep the house, which we're going to see is a very bad idea. The king went out, verse 17, and all the people with him, and they stopped at the last house. 
Now all his servants passed on beside him, all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the Gittites, 600 men who, have come, who had come with him from Gath passed on before the king. This seems so atypical of David. Remember, this is, this is the boy who tore apart a lion and a bear with his bare hands. This is the young man who killed a giant. This is the man on the, on the run who outwitted Saul's entire army. This is the warrior king who secured all of Israel and brought peace into the land by his, his fighting power. And now he's running away like a frightened child. He doesn't even stop to fight to defend Jerusalem against this conspiracy. Why? Some have suggested David ran to protect Jerusalem. He loved it so much, he didn't want to see Jerusalem fall and be a bloody battle and and see buildings raised and and things destroyed. So so he said, let's get out and at least protect the city by, by getting out of here. But I think it was much more than that. I think David, by this time in his life, is a broken man. He's tired of fighting. And his own son is coming against him. How do you fight that? He's realizing the prophecy of Nathan come true, 1 Samuel chapter 12, where Nathan says, the Lord says, the sword is going to be against your house from within your own house. One's going to rise up there and he's going to be against you. And it's going to be that way the rest of your life. And I was reading this and thinking, you know, all the enemies of the world are never as devastating as the enemy who comes from your own house. All the persecution from outside of the church, man, I can handle that. Bring it on. The atheists who want to shout against it. I, I would love, I would love picketers out here on a Sunday morning. That would be so cool. I think that's the greatest advertisement we can have. People picketing that barn church. Bring it on. I can handle that. No problem. But when the persecution comes from your own family or your own fellowship, that is the most painful thing in the world. Is it not, Thomas? Thomas, Pastor Thomas, my bud. We've got to do coffee again soon. All right, okay, don't leave. We'll plan that before you get out of here. Okay. That hurts when it's people that you worship with and love and care for and you're all together in this and persecution, man, when it comes from within and this is the most painful persecution in David's life. He fought all the enemies. Even Saul coming against him, he could handle that. But when it's his own son, ouch, that hurts. And so weeping, David leaves his beloved Zion, the city of David, verse 19 tells us. The king then said to Atai, the Gittite, who is this guy? We haven't seen him yet. This is the first time we see this, this guy. Why will you also go with us? Return and remain with the king. That is with Absalom. For you are a foreigner and also an exile. Return to your own place. You came only yesterday. And shall I today make you wander with us while I go where I will return? Take back your brothers. Mercy and truth be with you. But Atai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, surely wherever my Lord the king may be, whether for death or for life, there also your servant will be. Verse 22, Therefore David said to Atai, Go and pass over. So Atai the Gittite passed over with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. He stayed with David. This little vignette inserted here shows us two really very cool things. One is the heart of David. We're reminded that David is an honorable man. This guy, Atai the Gittite, he's a Philistine who had defected from Gath. And now is in David's fighting men, among his mighty men. 
And he's obviously risen up in the ranks and he's trusted by David. And so as David is gathering his guys and they're fleeing Jerusalem, and Tei is there and David says, Look, man, you haven't been with us that long. You don't, this is not your war. It's not your battle. Go on back. Mercy, truth be with you. But I love Tei's response. Whether for death or for life, surely wherever the Lord, the King may be, there also your servant will be. That is so cool. Such incredible loyalty. And Atei is to King David what you and I are to the son of David, Jesus Christ. I want to be able to say, like this man, to the son of David, I want to be able to say to Jesus, whether wherever my Lord the King may be, whether for death or for life, there will your servant be. And it doesn't matter if it's comfortable, I want to be there. And it doesn't matter if it's joyful, I want to be there. If it's life-filled, I want to be there. If it's deadly, I want to be there. And Peter's words ring across time where he says, Lord, even if everybody else falls away, I'll fight. I'll fight to the death for you. I'll stick it out with you. They're great words and honorable words, but you and I know Peter fell apart. You and I know I'd probably fall apart. But the Lord restores Peter because his heart is in the right place wherever you are Lord Jesus there I want to be back in John chapter 6 verse 67 Jesus was talking to his apostles he had just given some really hard teaching about eating my flesh and drinking my blood and masses of people left it was the most unevangelical message Jesus ever gave it was a tough one people couldn't handle it so they walk away and Jesus said to the twelve You do not want to go away also, do you? Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I can go away if I wanted to. i got nowhere else to go. You're the one. I'm not going to force you to follow me, the son of David would say. I'm not dragging anybody along this path, Jesus would say. But we can cry out from our hearts, No, whether for death or for life, there your servant will also be. Paul said in Philippians 3 verse 7, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Why, Paul? He says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Because Paul understood that following Jesus, following Jesus is worth death and life. Either way, Whatever the outcome, it is worth it. For life, because Jesus has the words of eternal life. For death, because He's the only one who knows the way out. I want to go Jesus' way. Into the grave and right back out. You know, If I die before He comes, three days is good with me. Then take me home. I'd really rather not die at all before He comes. Just take me home. That'll be good. Verse 23. While all the country... While all the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people passed over. Where did they pass over? The king also passed over the brook Kidron. And all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. Something interesting to note. The brook Kidron, the Kidron Valley. It runs on the east side of Jerusalem. Just to the west, up the mountain there, is the Temple Mount. You've got the Kidron Valley that comes down, and there was a brook that used to run through it. And then on up the other side is the Mount of Olives. And the Kidron, the name Kidron means dark. It gets its name for two reasons. Number one, on that side of Jerusalem, when the shadows fell long at the end of the day, the Kidron Valley was dark. It was a place of shadow. 
When David would write, even though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death, I will fear no evil. There's a sense of the Kidron Valley in those days being a picture of the, of the shadow of the valley of death. Kidron, dark. It was also called Kidron because the river itself tended to be a place where all the waste, all the waste products of Jerusalem would flow down into that river and on out. It wasn't probably the best river for bathing. And especially not around Passover. Because the Kidron ran blood red. And what's interesting to me, and the reason I tell you this, is at this point, in David's exodus, David passes over the Kidron. He passes over at this point as he's leaving Jerusalem, as he has been, as he's been um, rebelled against, as he's been betrayed. David passes over the Kidron and heads up the Mount of Olives. On the night of his betrayal, John 18 tells us, Jesus, the son of David, passes over the Kidron and heads up the Mount of Olives to Gethsemane, which is right at the bottom of the Mount of Olives. And when he crosses the Brook Kidron, it tells us he ascends the Mount of Olives. Now, behold, verse 24, Zadok also came and all the Levites with him, listen to this loyalty, they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God and Abiathar came up until all the people had finished passing from the city. And the king said to Zadok, Return the Ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he should say thus, I have no delight in you, behold, here I am, and let him do to me as seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace, and your two sons with you, your son Ahimeaz, and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. And see, I'm going to wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. What's David doing? He's saying, Zadok, Abiathar, you and your sons stay in the city. I, want, I need your ears there. I need your eyes there. I need to know what's going on. Therefore, verse 29, Zadok and Abiathar returned the ark of God to Jerusalem and they remained there. And David, verse 30, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went. And his head was covered and he walked barefoot and then all the people who were with him each covered his head and went up weeping as they went. And a thousand years later, Jesus would be weeping in the same exact spot in Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal. Verse 31. Verse 31 tells us, Now someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Another another sword or knife to the heart. And David said, and I love this prayer, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. The reality is, as we read on, and we'll get to this next week, the counsel of Ahithophel is actually great wisdom. So God doesn't do what we tell him to do. He does what he's going to do, which is the right thing, and we need to just trust him. Well, what happened is David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, that behold, Hushai, the archite, met him with his coat torn and dust on his head. And David said to him, If you pass over with me, then you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so I will now be your servant, then you can thwart the counsel of Ahithophel for me. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? And so it shall be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you report to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. 
And behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimeaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything that you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city. And Absalom came into Jerusalem. The flight of David and the rebellion of Absalom will continue on into the next chapter, which we're going to leave for next week. But I want to leave you with one thought, one final thing here about David. His heart is broken, but his faith is not. For all of this tragedy and sorrow and, and persecution that is hitting David all at once, his heart is broken, but his faith is not broken. He says in verse 26, If the Lord should say, I have no delight in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. I will trust the Lord to handle this situation. David has learned something in his 50-something plus years. He's in his late 50s now. And he's not being the fighter that he was before. As a young man, man, he would have fought. He would have said, bring it on, Absalom, let's go. Come on, I'll take you in the street. Let's go man to man, toe to toe. But as an older man... David says, you know, I'm tired of fighting. And if it's the Lord's will that I return here as king, I will. I will. doesn't matter what happens. If it's God's will, He'll take care of it. We're going to finish in Psalm 3. I want to read this to you. It's called A Morning Prayer of Trusting God. And the subtitle is A Psalm of David When He Fled from Absalom His Son. Here's David's heart. As he and the people are crossing over the Kedron and they're heading up the Mount of Olives and they're heading out to the east of Jerusalem, he says, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory and the one who lifts my head. When we sing that song, this is where it's coming from. You're my shield, Lord. You're my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice and He answered me from His holy mountain. What holy mountain? I submit to you that it is the Temple Mount right there or possibly the Mount of Olives but as David's walking across and he is weeping and crying and he is calling out to the Lord, God answers in his heart. He answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. (laughs) I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people to have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. David trusts the Lord. Worst situation at this point, this would be the lowest point of David's entire life right here. And yet he is even then able to say, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people.